In episode 41, we went through the first half of the top 10 musical curses in history. We discussed John Lennon and the number 9, the Hungarian suicide song, Jan and Dean and Dead Man's Curve, the dreaded Ninth Symphony, and the Devil's Trill Sonata. While some of the tales we discussed are hard to explain, sometimes people look for stories where there aren't any. According to Wikipedia, apophenia is the tendency to perceive meaningful connections between unrelated things. The term was coined by psychiatrist Klaus Conrad in his 1958 publication on the beginning stages of schizophrenia. He defined it as unmotivated seeing of connections accompanied by a specific feeling of abnormal meaningfulness. He described the early stages of delusional thought as self-referential over-interpretations of actual sensory perceptions as opposed to hallucinations. Apophenia has also come to describe a human propensity to unreasonably seek patterns in random information, such as can occur while gambling. So let's dive into the top five music-related curses in history. You can decide if they're made up or real. Episode 42, Musical Maledictions, Part 2. Number 5, The Day the Music Died. Buddy Holly was born Charles Harden Holly on September 7, 1936. He was born in Lubbock, Texas, in the middle of dust storms in the Great Depression. His family was musical in nature, and he was always singing and playing the guitar with his siblings. Early on in his short career, he opened for the likes of Elvis Presley and Bill Haley in his Comets. He'd soon sign a contract with Decca Records and form the Crickets. In September of 1957, the song That'll Be The Day went to the top of the U.S. and U.K. singles charts. A month later, Peggy Sue took over the airwaves and Buddy Holly was a bona fide star at the age of 21. In 1958, Holly met a young woman named Maria Elena Santiago. He asked her out right after meeting her and proposed to her during their first date. The two were married on August 15th and Holly's manager made them keep it a secret so as to not upset his female fan base. In early 1959, Holly pieced together a new backing band for an upcoming tour. The band included Waylon Jennings, famed session musician Tommy Alsup, and Carl Bunch on drums. The Winter Dance Party Tour, featuring Richie Valens, The Big Bopper, Dion and the Belmonts, and Buddy Holly, began in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23, 1959, a tour that was to take place across the Midwest in the middle of winter in the 1950s. What could go wrong? Everything, that's what. Distance and weather were never considered as the schedule was being made. The unheated tour buses broke down at least twice during the tour, and one of those times, drummer Carl Bunch was hospitalized for frostbitten toes. With that in mind, Holly sought out a chartered four-seat beachcraft to take them from their Clear Lake, Iowa show to their next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota. As the Clear Lake show ended, Tommy Alsup agreed to flip a coin with Richie Valens for his seat on the plane. Valens called heads and won. 
Waylon Jennings voluntarily gave up his seat to the Big Bopper, who was dealing with the flu. The pilot, Roger Peterson, took off in nasty winter weather. He failed to mention that he was not certified to fly by instruments alone. Shortly after takeoff on February 3, 1959, the plane took a nosedive into a frozen cornfield, and all four men on board were killed instantly. Buddy Holly was only 22 years old. His wife found out about the plane crash while watching a news report on television. She was pregnant at the time and suffered a miscarriage the next day. Holly's mother found out while listening to the radio. These two incidents were part of the reason why authorities implemented a policy against announcing victims' names until after families were informed. Maria Santiago reportedly blamed herself, saying, I know that if only I'd gone along, Buddy never would have gotten into that airplane. The event, while one of the most tragic in rock and roll history, is also said to be surrounded by a horrible curse. For starters, Buddy Holly witnessed his own death in his dreams. Before he left on tour, Holly and his wife Maria woke up with a start after they both experienced violent dreams. Maria apparently dreamt of a fireball descending to earth in the middle of a field, followed by an explosion and a gaping hole in the ground. Buddy Holly dreamt that he, his wife, and his brother were in a plane. In the dream, his brother convinced Holly to leave his wife on top of a building. Holly spent the dream racked with guilt for having left her behind. In 1958, while Holly was on tour in England, he received a message from Joe Meek, a British recording engineer and producer. Apparently, Meek had attended a tarot reading, where the person doing the reading gave him the message, February 3rd, Buddy Holly dies. While Holly was appreciative of the warning, he wasn't concerned since February 3rd had already passed. The following February 3rd, he'd die in a plane crash. Joe Meek struggled with paranoia and depression and became obsessed with Buddy Holly, stating that Holly would visit him in his dreams. On the 8th anniversary of the plane crash, Meek shot and killed his landlady before turning the shotgun on himself. He was 37 years old. Singer Eddie Cochran was supposed to be on the winter tour. After hearing about the plane crash, he felt that he had cheated death. He experienced tremendous guilt for still being alive and was worried that he could die at any point. Fourteen months later, he was driving to the airport with three friends when he was thrown from his vehicle after blowing out a tire and running into a lamppost. At just 21 years old, he was the only one in the car to die. The week before, he'd recorded his last single entitled Three Steps to Heaven. The backing band on the track was Buddy Holly's Crickets. A singer named Ronnie Smith replaced Holly on the rest of the Winter Dance Party Tour. On October 25, 1962, after being committed to a Texas state hospital, he was found hanging in a hospital bathroom. After the death of Holly, the original Crickets hired 17-year-old David Box to be their new singer. He sang with the group for a few years and recorded the hit Peggy Sue Got Married. While trying to launch a solo career, Box died on October 23, 1964, when the plane he was traveling in crashed. Box was 22 at the time, the same age as Holly when his crash occurred. 23-year-old Bobby Fuller was a big fan of Buddy Holly. After sending a demo to Holly's parents, he and his band, the Bobby Fuller Four, were signed to a record deal. They managed to release a big hit entitled I Fought the Law, which happened to be written by Sonny Curtis of the Crickets. On July 18th of 1966, Fuller was found dead in his car, horribly beaten and soaked in gasoline. His mother, who lived in the Hollywood apartment with her son, found him in front of their building. 
It was suspected that he owed money to the mob. In the days before his death, Fuller had just finished recording the Buddy Holly pen song, Love's Made a Fool of You. After Gary Busey played Buddy Holly in the 1978 biopic The Buddy Holly Story, he earned an Academy Award nomination for the role and was looking at a promising career. For some reason, his career never took off, and ten years later, he almost died in a motorcycle accident that fractured his skull, and he hasn't been the same since. The screenwriter for the Buddy Holly story was a man named Robert Gittler. He committed suicide right before the film's release date. There are plenty of more connections to the Buddy Holly curse, but they get a little farther reaching as you go. Buddy Holly was one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Hundreds of musicians felt, or still feel, a connection to the young man. Number 4. Fleetwood Mac Guitarists There have been many lineup changes in Fleetwood Mac's 50-plus years Hall of Fame career. The band was formed in 1967 by guitarist Peter Green and drummer Mick Fleetwood. Bassist John McVie joined at the end of the year, and the group released two albums together. In 1968, Peter Green brought on another guitar player to take some of the pressure off of him. Fans were vocal in saying that Green was better than Eric Clapton. Danny Kirwan was young and brought a fresh perspective for their third album, entitled Then Play On. The album still stands as one of Fleetwood Mac's greatest. Unfortunately, between drug addiction and sudden religious issues, Peter Green left the band in early 1970. Down to four members, Fleetwood Mac continued on and released a new album in September of 1970. They'd added an uncredited piano and backing vocalist in John McVie's then-wife, Christine McVie. This iteration of the band wouldn't last much longer. While on tour in 1971, as Fleetwood Mac was getting ready to take the stage at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go in L.A., guitarist Jeremy Spencer left suddenly to visit a bookstore. He never came back. The show had to be canceled, and Spencer joined a religious group known as the Children of God, he still writes for the religious group's website today. Peter Green came back to help finish the tour and then promptly left again. When the tour wrapped, Fleetwood Mac once again needed a new guitarist. Bob Welch filled those shoes and brought along with him a more melodic sound that the band is now known for. They released two albums between 1971 and 1972 with Welch on guitar. While on tour in 1972, just minutes before taking the stage again, 22-year-old guitarist Danny Kirwan was completely hammered. Throughout the tour, he'd been on a steady diet of booze, hardly ever eating. Touring was taking a toll on him, and he suddenly snapped while tuning his guitar as he'd done night in and night out. He bloodies his fists by punching the wall, tosses his Gibson Les Paul through a mirror, and leaves the dressing room. As he heads out towards the waiting crowd, he stops to smash his head into the corridor wall repeatedly until his face looks like his knuckles. He refuses to join the band on stage and proceeds to heckle his soon-to-be ex-bandmates throughout the show. Kerwan was promptly kicked out of the band, developed mental health problems from all the drinking and drugs, and spent a bit of time living homeless in London. New guitarist Bob Weston joined the band and helped put out the 1973 album Mystery to Me. Unfortunately, Weston was caught having an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife and removed from the band. The band ended up losing the rights to their name for a while. Their manager fired the band and replaced them with random people for a tour that failed. The remaining four members sued, won, and moved to America. They went without the extra guitarist for a while, 
and managed to put out another album, but then in 1974, guitarist Bob Welch quit. Now they were down to three. That's when Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, romantically involved at the time, joined the band as a package deal. That version of the group saw the most success. Perhaps the curse was broken. The album Rumors is what sealed the deal for Fleetwood Mac going down as one of the greatest bands of all time. They lasted together until 1987, when Buckingham quit on the day before a tour was about to begin. Since that time, members have retired, come out of retirement, quit for good, and come back for one more show. There have been plenty of lineups throughout the years, and six different members have come and gone. Currently handling guitar duties are former Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers guitarist Mike Campbell and Neil Finn from Crowded House. I think. Anyway, this is one curse I might believe. After battling years of psychedelic drugs and mental illness, Peter Green passed away in his sleep in 2020. Jeremy Spencer joined a cult and has been charged with sex crimes in the past. Danny Kerwan died in his sleep from pneumonia complications in 2018. He was 68. Bob Welch shot himself in 2012 after failed spinal surgery. He was just 65. Bob Weston was found dead in his home in 2012. He was only 64. Number 3. The Glass Harmonica Picture, if you will, sitting at a restaurant and some kid at the table next to you dips his fingers into a glass of water. Now he begins to run his wet digit around the rim of the glass repeatedly until that haunting high-pitched sound begins to emanate from the glass. Do you freak out and chastise his parents for their poor parenting, or do you join in, creating a symphony of sound? The act of rubbing a wet finger around the rim of a wine goblet goes back as far as Renaissance times and was even discussed by Galileo. The glass harmonica, also known as the armonica, glass harmonium, bowl organ, or simply hydrodactyl psychic harmonica, is a type of musical instrument that uses a series of glass bowls or goblets graduated in size to produce musical tones by means of friction. It was invented in 1761 by Benjamin Franklin. After watching a performance of Edward Delavelle playing water-filled wine glasses, Franklin contacted a London-based glassblower, and his first glass harmonica made its world premiere in 1762. In a note Franklin wrote to a friend in Italy, he mentioned the instrument. The advantages of this instrument are that its tones are incomparably sweet beyond those of any other, that they may be swelled and softened at pleasure by stronger or weaker pressures of the finger and continued to any length, and that the instrument, being well-tuned, never again wants tuning. The popularity and novelty of the musical instrument didn't stick around for long. Its low volume compared to other instruments and rumors of the harm it could cause didn't help matters. There was a growing belief that, if performed for a long enough duration, musicians and listeners alike could go mad. A German musicologist named Johann Friedrich Rocklitz was quoted as saying, The glass harmonica excessively stimulates the nerves, plunges the player into a nagging depression, and hence into a dark and melancholy mood. That is an apt method for slow self-annihilation. If you're suffering from any nervous disorder, you should not play it. If you are not yet ill, you should not play it excessively. If you are feeling melancholy, you should not play it, or else play uplifting pieces. Marianne Davies, friend and correspondent with Franklin, was the first to play the instrument publicly. 
She'd become rather good at playing it, but after touring with the instrument for a couple of years, she became afflicted with a melancholia attributed to the plaintive tones of the instrument. Another young woman at the time, who'd become a prolific glass harmonica player, died at the age of 39 from the same symptoms. Here's a sample. There have also been claims that players suffered from lead poisoning because harmonicas were made of lead glass. Whatever the case, many musicians will not touch the instrument now for fear of its haunting tones driving them insane. Number 2. The Crossroads Curse Legend has it that Robert Johnson, king of the Delta Blues, was not a very good guitar player until the day he came upon the devil at the crossroads. The devil tuned his guitar for him, granted him the ability to be one of the best, and took his soul in return. Johnson's quick rise into stardom, combined with songs like Hellhound on My Trail and Me and the Devil Blues, only solidified the rumors that spread about Johnson throughout the years in some people's eyes. Johnson died not long after recording Crossroad Blues. He was 27. More on that in a moment. The Crossroads Curse tells us that performing the song, in any manner, can lead to dire consequences for those musicians. Want some examples? Of course you do. In 1968, the band Cream was at the height of their fame with hits like Strange Brew, Sunshine of Your Love, and White Room. Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker had found their groove as a three-piece band and managed to blend rock and blues into something their fan base was eating up. Cream recorded Johnson's Crossroad Blues for their album Wheels of Fire. Wheels was a double record with one disc recorded in the studio and the other recorded live. Crossroad Blues, or Crossroads as Cream titled it, was on the live album. Cream unfortunately broke up shortly after recording Crossroads. The album's producer was Felix Papillardi, one-third of the power trio and curator favorite, Mountain. In 1983, Papillardi was shot and killed by his wife, Gail Collins Papillardi, in their apartment on the east side of Manhattan. The gun she'd used to kill him was a gift he'd given her just a few months before. In 1991, Eric Clapton's son Connor fell from a 53rd floor window of his mom's friend's New York City apartment. Crossroad Blues was a favorite of the Allman Brothers Band during live shows. In 1971, Dwayne Allman was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident at another crossroads near Macon, Georgia. He swerved his motorcycle to avoid hitting a truck and later died from his injuries. Just over a year later, guitarist Barry Oakley was killed while riding his motorcycle. It happened at a different intersection, only a mile away from where Dwayne Allman met his untimely death. Dwayne's brother Greg mentions Dwayne's connection to Crossroads in the song Melissa, with the lyrics, Crossroads, will you ever let him go, or will you hide the dead man's ghost? The band Leonard Skinnerd also loved to cover the song while on tour. In October of 1977, as the band was flying towards their next show at Louisiana State University, 
their plane lost an engine in mid-flight and crashed into a Mississippi swamp. Six people died in the crash, including the band's frontman, Ronnie Van Zandt. Led Zeppelin was another band who loved Robert Johnson, working his lyrics and songs into their own recordings and live shows. Zeppelin was a band that some felt carried their own set of curses as rumors of black magic swirled. Robert Plant lost his son to septic shock in 1977. Jimmy Page battled rumors of sexual sadism and a wicked addiction to heroin. Zeppelin would go on to lose their drummer, John Bonham, in 1980 at the age of 32, and their manager, Peter Grant, in 1995 at the age of 60. Grant had been driving his car when he had a heart attack. One of the last known artists to have potentially fallen prey to the crossroad curse was none other than Kurt Cobain. The lead singer of Nirvana would often pull out his guitar for family and friends and play his own acoustic version of the song. According to one report, Cobain was considering reworking it for the band to play live and was also interested in the idea of recording the song. Then, in April of 1994, Cobain was found at his Washington home, deceased from a shotgun blast to the head. Speaking of Kurt Cobain and Robert Johnson, that brings us to our number one most notorious curse in music. Number one, the 27 Club. Robert Johnson's death on August 16, 1938, began what is known in the music world as the 27 Club. It was not tied back to him or named, however, until a number of significant rock and roll deaths towards the end of the 1960s. In July of 1969, the Rolling Stones founder and guitarist Brian Jones was found dead in a swimming pool. The official coroner's report states, Death by Misadventure. He was 27. The following year saw three deaths of 27-year-old musicians. 1970 took canned heat singer Alan Blind Owl Wilson via drug overdose on September 3rd. Then came the death of Jimi Hendrix, 15 days later, on September 18th. He died from asphyxiation, choking on his own vomit while high on drugs. Soon after that, on October 4th, Janis Joplin overdosed on what was likely heroin and passed away. They were all, you guessed it, 27 years old. On July 3rd of 1971, the 27 Club welcomed a new member, indoors frontman Jim Morrison. The cause was listed as heart failure, but they never did an autopsy. The year 1973 took Ron Pigpen McKernan of the Grateful Dead thanks to alcoholism. Peter Ham of Badfinger hung himself three days before he turned 28 in 1975. Gary Thane of Uriah Heep also joined the club that same year after a drug overdose. Thirteen more musicians died at the age of 27 between 1976 and 1993. Kurt Cobain's death brought the 27 Club back into the headlines after his apparent suicide. Whole bassist Kristen Pfaff died of a drug overdose two months later in 1994. Eighteen musicians or actors, including three rappers, died at the age of 27 between 1995 and 2010. In 2011, the next big name joined the club when singer-songwriter Amy Winehouse passed away at the age of 27 due to alcohol poisoning. Since then, the frequency of deaths at that age has slowed way down. The most recent member in the 27 Club is Elvis Presley's grandson, who shot himself in July of 2020. There have actually been numerous scientific studies done about the 27 Club. A study published in the British Musical Journal in December 2011 concluded that there was no increase in the risk of death for musicians at that specific age. 
It was shown that, yeah, musicians did face an increased risk of death in their 20s and 30s due to lifestyle choices, but there was no specific evidence shown that it's worse during the 27th year of life. So there you go, 10 of the top perceived curses in the music world. I hope you enjoyed learning about them. Did I miss any big ones? Let me know. I recently got to be a part of a TEDx evening with some students, parents, and staff from the school I work at. Finding the hidden story was my topic. Eventually, my talk will make its way to the internet. I'll let you know when that happens and share the link. It was a wonderful experience, although if I had been any more nervous, I would have passed out. For as much as I like talking, speaking in public never gets easier for me. Thank you to all of the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for all being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.